morning, Bethel. Well, as has already been said, um, we are starting a new series this morning that's going to run for about six weeks, and it's on the local church um, in God's plan. Um, So the title is Faith in the Local Church, and or you can call it Filk for short if you want. That's dumb. Um, But there's a double meaning in that on purpose. Do you believe in the local church? So faith in the local church, what what's in a title, do you believe in the local church? And what I mean by that is robust, hearty, what God says about the local church is what I believe about the local church. Do you believe in this organism, this institution that God has established? Um, There's certainly a lot of anti-church sentiment out there. Um, There just might be some of it in here. Um, So there's, let me just read a couple quotes from this book. I read it, um, I started a little while ago and I finished it this week. Um, It's called Why We Love the Church by Kevin DeYoung and Ted Cluck. Um, Great book. So um, they have lots of quotes from people that have just kind of left the church. There's whole um, books that have been written about why you know, if you really want to get on God's program, you're just going to leave the, the local church behind and, and move on to more revolutionary ideas of how to do Christianity. Um, so here's one of the things they say. In the church's lame critique, so they've read a bunch of books where that's basically the theme. Um, I've read the usual Protestant worship service described as watching a praise concert, a two-hour-a-week dumping ground for guilt, on the best days tolerable, on the worst painful, a robotic routine conducted without emotion, passion, or zeal, a little more than sitting in a sanctuary once a week. It's also been called a religious show that takes place on Sunday and a mindless observation of meaningless routines. Or some of the cynics will speak like this. Um, apparently there's a, a lady named Sarah Cunningham um, on her book, or in her book on leaving the church, she tells about surveying the citizens of her own Michigan town for their impressions of the church and how the church could do more in the community. One lady responded by saying this, we've already got tons of churches. Look around. There's a church on every corner. I bet you could count nine or ten within three blocks of here. That's about true. Well, maybe not three blocks, but anyway, three miles, certainly more than that. Um, and nothing has changed, has it? People don't have enough job training or employment opportunities. Drunks wander the streets. The same homeless people have been circling in and out of the shelters for the past 15 years. Kids don't have anything to do to keep them out of trouble. Meanwhile, the churches keep right on existing, holding their services every Sunday, and it never changes anything. It seems pretty obvious to me that churches are not the answer. It's a pretty typical sentiment. So she goes on and expresses her disappointment and embarrassment with the church. But then the authors say, does the continuing presence of problems in our communities really demonstrate the failure of the church? And they say this, do we assume police officers are worthless because we still have crime? Or parents are pointless because kids still do stupid things? So anyway, there's plenty of anti-church sentiment out there, maybe a fair amount in here, some cynicism. So, do we believe in the local church even if it's not clicking on all cylinders like we would like it to be? I don't know if we'll ever be clicking on all cylinders, but, you know, hey, I know we're not clicking on all cylinders. That's no surprise. So, 
do we believe in it? Whether it's going really well, whether it's going really hard, whether we're in a fruitful, like joyful patch, or whether it's a kind of a barren place, do we believe in the local church? And then secondly, what does faith in the local church, like worked out in the context of the local church, look like? What does it, live, what does it look like for that faith to get fleshed out in the context of our life together as the local church. So that's the dual meaning um, in the title of the series, okay? So we're going to look at the main metaphors of the church in the Bible, the way that um, God uses these various analogies or metaphors to describe the nature of His people, His church. And this week, the metaphor is the body, okay? So again, the aim of the series and of this morning is that we would believe in the local church like God wants us to believe what God says about who she is, who we are if we are a part of the church. And also that as we consider what it means and embrace that wholeheartedly, what is that faith going to look like as it gets worked out very practically um, in our lives in the local church as we live and do life together. So, if you want to turn in your Bibles to um, 1 Corinthians 12, our text is 1 Corinthians 12, and we're actually going to begin at verse 12. I think it says verse 4 in the bulletin, um, but I changed that, so we're going to actually start um, at verse 12. So before we dive in, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our, on our study. Oh God, um, you have promised to build your church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. And yet it's really easy to look around sometimes and look at our own lives, look at the church around us, look at the churches around us, look at the church in America and be discouraged and wonder if you're really going to make good on all these exalted promises. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bolster our confidence in your plan. I pray that we really would believe in the local church, her place and centrality in your plan and mission and her place and centrality in our lives. And I pray that you would give us guidance and wisdom. It's going to look different for each of us, but I pray that you would show us what it should look like as we seek to flesh that faith out week by week as we love one another as we care for one another, as we teach and encourage each other, as we help each other along the pilgrim path. So we need your grace. We thank you that you have made us part of your body. By your grace, we have been reconciled to you and you have incorporated us into Christ. I pray that that would be so precious to us that we would abide in him knowing that apart from him we can do nothing but 
by abiding in him, we can bear much fruit to your glory. So please, would you bless this study, this series? We need it. Show us how we need it. And I pray that you would work the grace and truth of these different texts, these different um, metaphors of what the church is and what it's supposed to be. Work it into us, not just into our heads merely with information and data, but work it into our souls and knead it into our community life so that we can be what you've called us to be. So we ask for your grace and help in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we are Christ's body. Um, We're the members. He's the head. So we need to start with the head of the body. Okay? So in Ephesians 5, you have that passage about husbands and wives. Um, And certainly that text is about husbands and wives. But that text is also about Christ and his bride. In fact, that's the archetype. That's the the central um, dynamic in that text. And human marriages, Christian marriages, are supposed to be a little reflection Um, a little miniature scale model of the marriage. But listen to what it says in Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Okay, so the church is a body. We are a body. If you are a believer, if you... Believer in Jesus Christ, part of the church of God, you are a member of the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. Jesus is our head. Okay? So everything starts there, and everything needs to stay there centrally when we're talking about the body of Christ. Because without the head, we're nothing. We have to, be, we have to remain connected to the head if anything is going to happen. So Colossians 2.19 says this. It talks about the possibility of those who are not holding fast to the head, from which the whole body, the head, from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So Paul, in that context, is warning the Colossians against those who are not holding fast to the head, those people can lead you astray and disqualify you, is what he says. So not holding fast to the head is possible, and it's very dangerous. We've got to hold fast to our head. He's the source of our life and our growth. Okay, so all of this begins with the gospel of Jesus, where we all by nature are cut off. Remember, in the day you eat of it in the garden, you'll surely die. They obviously didn't you know, just disappear when they ate the fruit, but they were cut off, just like a branch being cut off from the tree. It's laying there on the ground, but it's no longer attached to the life source. That's why Paul in Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Okay, so spiritually we're lifeless without being connected to the head. Okay, that's why Jesus came. That's why he lived the life that we failed to live. That's why he died in our place on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God. That sin that separated us could be taken care of, atoned for, and we could be reunited and reconciled to God, in a sense, grafted back in to the source of life. So he is the head in that sense But also, head implies authority. So he's the source of our life. 
we were cut off. When we repent of our sin that cut us off from Christ, we trust in Jesus to reconcile us to God. That life source is reestablished. We are alive together with Christ. But He's also our authority. He's the Lord. He's our source of life. He's the Lord. And when we become Christians, we get this new heart, a soft heart that wants to submit to Jesus as our Lord. So we're reconciled, and then we're given this new heart, soft heart that wants to submit to our head, the Lord Jesus. Okay, so we would be foolish to begin to just assume that and begin with the body part stuff because our spiritual life comes from Jesus at the beginning and it's sustained by Christ all the way through. We always need to hold fast to the head. Okay, we can't lose our head. And I I don't say that flippantly. I know that's an expression, but in, in our day and age with decapitations in the news, I don't say that flippantly. But in in the, the sense of Colossians 2.19, we dare not assume our need to stay connected to the head. Just like John 15, abiding in the vine. Apart from the vine, the branches can do nothing. Okay, Apart from the head, the body is lifeless and just dead weight. So we must submit to our head. Jesus as the head of the body. doesn't mean that he's just the brains. It means he is the, the authority. He's in charge. Okay, so, so already we need to just deal with that. We need to apply that and say, do we consciously, willingly submit to, embrace, and love the authority of our head, King Jesus? If we're part of the body, that's one of the implications. Okay, we all kind of tend to naturally chafe at the thought of submission. And I don't just mean in the realm of husband and wife relations. I mean any sort of submission in any area of life. It's not what we naturally want. But I think we need to see that there is no neutral place of no submission. Okay, as much as we want to be free and independent, we will all submit to someone or something every day of our lives. Okay, you and I are slaves simply of whom or what we obey. That could be money. And you just follow, follow the money. Follow money's promises of comfort and security and prestige and whatever. You could be a slave of the approval of others. You could be submissive to that. Doing whatever it takes to not burn a bridge. Doing whatever it takes to be in in a particular group. Or a God of success which comes alongside a fear of failure and you just are utterly bowed down before that God. So we'll all bow to something or someone we're all worshiping and serving. Okay, so it's not a matter of if you'll submit, but to whom or to what you will submit. And Jesus is the only good master, the only good head to submit to and honor. And you know, I think because there's so much abuse of, of power and authority, oftentimes we just think that authority and power has nothing but bad connotations. Okay? But if you think about it, there is something in all of us that welcomes and delights in submitting to really good, wise, like, wow, I would follow you through a brick wall sort of leadership. 
Have you ever known anybody like that in your life? Maybe it was a coach. Okay, I mean, have you ever known, I mean, big, tough football players aren't typically a demographic that are known for their humility. But you know what? If they've got a really, really good coach, they will willingly submit and run through a wall for that guy. Jesus is the greatest authority, master, king, Lord that there is. There's no reason to chafe at his authority. He's not an abusive husband. He's not a brutal coach. You can trust him. Okay, so he is our life. He's the source of our life, spiritual life, and he's our Lord. We must submit to him. Okay, so we either abide in him and find vitality and fruitfulness, or we look elsewhere for our life, and we will dry out like a leaf, like cut flowers. Okay, you either find your place under him as your Lord, practically, on a daily, weekly basis, or we are rebelling against his authority, okay, which is a bad idea always to, to kick against him. Okay, if this God is for you, you want this God for you. If he's for you, who can be against you? Okay, so Jesus is the head of the body. We have to start with him. Everything starts with him, and everything is sustained by him. Now, what is on our head's mind for us, his body? I hope you care about that question. Do you want to know what King Jesus has to say about his body, the church? Because if he's really your Lord, your head, the source of life, and your authority, your leader, you want to know what he has to say about the church because you want to follow. You want to, you want to fold right in. You want to fit right in. So that's what brings us now to 1 Corinthians 12. Okay, so if you um, didn't bring a Bible with you, you can use the one in the pew and you can find our text on page 959. So we'll start in verse 12. There's also a, uh, a little outline in the bulletin that could be helpful as you follow along. We've already gone over point number one, the head of the body, and then now we're going to look at point two, unity and diversity in verses 12 to 14. So look there. Chapter 12, verse, verses 12 to 14. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Okay, so do you see how verse 12 establishes the analogy? Just as the body is one and many, so also it is with Christ and his body. Okay, because, look at verse 13, we Christians were all baptized into one body. No matter what your ethnicity, what your social status, it doesn't matter. All Christians are equally members of Christ's body. Rich, poor, blue collar, white collar, educated, uneducated, male, female, etc., etc., etc. Okay? We were all given the Spirit of God to make us new. We're a new creature, creature, new creation in Christ. Okay, so by the Spirit of God at conversion, we are incorporated. Do you hear the body language? Corp, corpus, okay? So we are incorporated into Christ, into his body. So there's unity emphasized in verse 13. Do you see that? And there's diversity emphasized in verse 14. 
Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. That's the diversity. So as we walk down through 1 Corinthians 12 here, we're going to see that there's a number of implications to our unity and a number of implications to our diversity. And we're certainly not going to be exhaustive here this morning, but we'll hit on some of the key implications. So first implication is point number three, indispensability. Um, when you hear of membership in, in the local church or membership in the body of Christ, um, be sure that you don't hear membership like we use it for your pool for the summer or Costco. Are you a Costco member, a BJ's member, or you're a member of a political party or Grayling Crest or whatever pool you're a part of? Okay, membership in that sense is merely membership in the sense of units in a set. That's not what Paul's talking about here. This is membership in in an organic sense, in the sense of organs, body parts in a body. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis put it in a little essay called Membership. The very word membership is of Christian origin, but it has been taken over by the world and emptied of all its meaning. How true membership in a body differs from inclusion in a collective may be seen in the structure of a family. The grandfather, the parents, the grown-up son, the child, the dog, and the cat are true members in the organic sense precisely because they are not members or units of a homogeneous class. They are not interchangeable. Each person is almost a species in himself. The mother is not simply a different person from the daughter. She is a different kind of person. The grown-up brother is not simply one unit in a class children. He is a separate estate of the realm. The father and grandfather are almost as different as the cat and the dog. (laughs) You know, in the sense he means here. If you subtract any one member... You have not simply reduced the family in number. You've inflicted an injury on its structure. That's why death feels like amputation. So look at how Paul unpacks the implications. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. No way. The body needs feet. All the parts are indispensable. You, you and I, we need to know You need to know that you are necessary and indispensable to the body of Christ. doesn't matter who you are. If you're genuinely a believer, you are indispensable to this body. In an organic sense, like I don't want to do without my foot. So don't think you're unnecessary because you're not some other part. Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. No, you're still a foot. We need you. Verse 16, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. The whole point of it being like, duh, is the point. So, so much for inferiority complexes. Well, I can't do this and I can't do that. Enough with the inferiority complexes. Also, no envy. Don't say, I wish I were like that, or I wish I, wish I weren't. You and I, each of us, need to, one, trust God with who he's made us to be and how he's gifted us. Look at, a couple times in this passage. Look at verse 11. 
All these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Look at verse 18. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. Trust God the way that He's made you. If you're a Christian, you're part of the body of Christ, and you're a necessary part, not just kind of a mere unit. You can kind of, oh, I let my membership lapse at, at Costco. They're not going to miss you. Well, maybe they'll, they'll, they want your money, so they'll see, keep sending you letters. But you, you see what I'm saying? This is very different. So the unity is only from diversity. A body is a body precisely because of the diversity of its indispensable parts that all are joined together to be one body. The diversity of the parts is essential to the wholeness and the effectiveness of the whole. Diversity is necessary to the unity. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And he knows what he's doing. We can trust him. If all were a single member, where would the body be? It's not a body without the diversity. It's not a unified body without the diverse parts. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So each of us need to see and believe in this indispensability that Paul is talking about here. So if we really believe that the church is a body, the body of Christ, then this organic necessity of the parts applies to you. It applies to me. Okay, we can't write ourselves off because we don't feel, you know, I just feel like a spleen, you know, just unnecessary. And you wish you were a bicep. No, if you really believe the church is a body, then this organic necessity of the parts applies to everyone. So, it applies to me. I need to trust God with the way he's gifted me, and I need to be the part he's made me to be. And then also it applies to the way that I look at all the other parts. Look at the interdependency now in verse 21. This is point number four. The eye cannot say to the, to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So the last point, no inferiority complexes. What's this one? No superiority complexes. Do you see it? The eye can start thinking, look at all I can do. I'm so complex. You know, I'm the reason you can see anything, start thinking pretty highly of, of, of itself. But guess what? Without the eyelid, the eye's in trouble. How often do you think of your eyelids? So who do you think you are? No superiority complexes. You are not independent and self-sufficient. Some people don't engage with the local church because they don't think they have anything to offer. No, you're indispensable. Some people don't engage because they think they're too good. They're going to just, you know, I just get slowed down. No. The church needs you. And you need the church. You're not independent. You're not self-sufficient. You are interdependent as a part, an organ of one body. So the diversity, again, is for unity. Look at verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. There's that word again. Listen to this quote by um, one commentator, 
on 1 Corinthians here. The principle of love, which, remember the next chapter is the love chapter? They were not exercising these gifts with love. That's why Paul puts chapter 13 where he puts it. The principle of love embodied in the cross mandates that one should always seek honor for others, which stands in absolute antithesis to the dominant value that seeks honor only for oneself in a preening self-indulgence. The gift of the weaker, unpresentable members to the church is that they give others a concrete opportunity to practice love and patience. I think that's just one reason, not the only reason, but that's a real reason. So Paul, listen to how he writes, Bill read this earlier, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 12, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. There's interdependency. So watch how Paul unpacks this back in 1 Corinthians 12. Look at verse 23. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. What? Well, yes, if you're wondering, Paul's referring to genitalia here. Think about it. These are parts that we are careful to cover. They're unpresentable. It would be shameful not to cover them. But does that mean that they're worthless or pointless? No, they're vital organs, and their very nature means we treat them with special care and modesty. Okay, so don't miss the point here. What Paul is getting at, all the members, all the organs, all the parts of the body are indispensable. All of them are important. So don't wallow in self-deprecation on the sidelines. I wish I could. All I can do, I can't do this. I wish I was. I w-. There's work for you to do. Use those indispensable gifts or gift for the good of the body. If you're not sure what it is, come talk to me. Talk to Pat. Pastor Tyler, you can try something. See if it clicks. If it doesn't, okay, try something else. The whole point is, I'm a part of the body. I know I've been gifted by the Spirit of God, and I want to use the gift for the good of the body. Okay, so don't deprive the rest of the body. All the parts are indispensable. Okay, or on the other hand, we can't think too highly of ourselves, right? So no inferiority complex, also no superiority complexes. I don't care how strong or seemingly self-sufficient you feel, you need the body. A bicep laying on the ground, bodiless, no matter how big it is, even if it's bigger than mine, no, just kidding, um, is worthless to the body. We are, you and I, are interdependent. Okay, now look at the purpose of this indispensability and interdependence. Why did God arrange it this way for unity? Okay, or to use the language of verse 24, indivisibility. Okay, verse 24, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Why? That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
Okay, if one member suffers, all suffer. You know this. You know this happens with a body. Have you ever hit your thumb with a hammer? What happens? Your whole body, you go like this. Wham! You go, whoa. Like, what do your back muscles have to do with your thumb? Your whole body reacts to that. Or if you are running and you pull a hamstring, your whole body pulls up because it's got to care for the hamstring, right? Okay, so if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Okay, so we've been talking about the humility and the contentment that are cultivated when we embrace this metaphor, the fact that we're the body of Christ, no inferior to complexes, no superior superiority complexes. When we embrace the teaching of this chapter, Humility and contentment make it possible for us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Our natural tendency is to be jealous of those who rejoice. Wish it was us. Sometimes we secretly want people to fail, especially if we're feeling like a failure. Okay, but if we're one, an honor for one part is an honor for the whole because we're one. That's the whole point of the unity, right? So that's the text just as we've walked down through it. Now, again, let's ask the question, do we have faith in the local church? Let's kind of gauge our, our faith, how strong it is in what God says about the local church. And is that faith getting fleshed out? So think through these points again. Think about the head of the body. If we're members of Christ's body, how can we resist submitting to him without there being an effect on us and on the body. I mean, are there any areas in your life right now, this can seem very individual, like it's just you and Jesus, where if you ever get quiet, like maybe before bed at night, something that you need to deal with just comes up and you just don't want to deal with it and you, you just want to go to bed. Or if you're driving, you turn the radio on because you don't want to have to deal with that thing. If you're stiff-arming Jesus, it has an impact on the body because we're one. When that kind of stuff is happening, when we're harboring rebellion and sin, it's going to keep us from engaging because we, we actually don't want to go to home group because somebody might get in our kitchen. And then we're not going to be there to care and listen to somebody else and walk alongside them. So do you see how our sin affects the body? So resistance to the head, stiff-arming Jesus, the head, will have a body effect, a horizontal effect. Okay, so the body metaphor first means that we have a head. And you can't have a head if you keep pushing away from the head, thinking you're smarter than the head. We can't be the church without submitting to the head. Okay, on the other hand, there are people who supposedly love Jesus, but they hate the church, or they kind of put up with it, merely. They have kind of that anti-church streak in them, maybe some of the sentiments that I read earlier, okay? Or maybe they just think the church is optional, it's not that important, at least for them. Well, you know what that's like? It's kind of like decorpulation. They kind of coined that term. So we know what decapitation is. What about decorpulation? So listen to the way that they unpack this. I think it's pretty helpful. Okay? 
If decapitation from the Latin word caput, <laughs> I don't know if I pronounced that right, my kids would probably be able to correct me, means to cut off the head, then it stands to reason that decorpulation from the Latin word corpus should refer to cutting off the body. It's the perfect word to describe the content of this book. If our editors had been asleep at the wheel, we could have called it Recent Trends in Decorpulation. There is a growing movement among self-proclaimed evangelicals and in the broader culture to get spirituality without religion, to find a relationship without rules, and have God without the church. More and more people are looking for a decorpulated Christianity. And then they start out with this thought. Is a head still a head if it doesn't have a body? Is a basement still a basement if there's no house on top? Is a friend really your friend if you can't stand his wife? According to 1 Corinthians 3, the church is God's building with Jesus Christ as its foundation. To be sure, there can be no superstructure without a solid foundation. That's obvious. But it should also be obvious that no one lays a foundation unless he plans to build on it. No one drives past a cement foundation in the dirt and thinks, hey, looks like they're about ready to move in. We know that a foundation exists to be built upon, not lived in all by itself. Who wants to live in a basement without the rest of the house on top? No one I know except for the Christians who want Jesus but not the church. Just think of how weird it would be to want this direct organic connection to the head without having to deal with any of the other body parts. <laughs> just, just try to picture this. Okay, I want to be a neck, but get those shoulders away from me. Like, I want to be a femur, but can I just, like, go right up? It just it doesn't work. I don't want to have to interact with ligaments and muscles and joints. But that's sometimes how we operate. Again, faith in the local church, what's it supposed to look like? So if we are members of Christ's body, how can we refuse to be members one of another without effect. If we stiff-arm Jesus, there's going to be an effect. If we stiff-arm each other, there's going to be an effect. We can't want to be decapitated or decorpulated or dismembered. Okay, so this brings us back to unity and diversity. Look around. The people here that God has assembled gathered together here as Bethel. Do you try as hard as you can to just be around those whom you like and who are like you? That's what we naturally do, okay? If you're trying to do that, and we can all be prone to this, we're just trying to, trying to turn our church experience into an affinity cluster, kind of like a click. But God has made our family with all kinds of different parts. It doesn't take grace to just get together with the people that are just like you. Okay, so we need to really believe this unity and diversity and then for that faith to flesh itself out as we embrace and welcome all kinds of people from all kinds of different locations on the map in every sense for the sake of unity. So do we really believe that? Let's live that out. How about indispensability and interdependency, okay? I don't know what the case is for you, but why do we not get involved sometimes? Why do we skip stuff we shouldn't skip? Why are we tempted to skip stuff we shouldn't skip? Do we say stuff like, 
they won't miss me, they don't need me. Well, that could be false humility. Believe the Bible. <laughs> What's this text say about indispensability? I mean, that's got to have some shoe leather on it. Or, I don't need this. I don't need them. Pride, let's believe the Bible. We need each other, interdependence. No biceps on the floor. So this goes for home group. It goes for serving in some ministry. It even goes for coming on Sunday morning. Oh, I'm just a passive observer. We just sit. No, 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 no. This is not a passive thing. It should never be a passive thing. Praying's not a passive thing, is it? Singing's not a passive thing, is it? Listening for the sake of living is not a passive thing, is it? Like the convers do you know how important the conversations are before and after the service are for who we are and how well we care for each other? Oh, how much you can you possibly do in five minutes, ten minutes? Actually, quite a bit. <laughs> because we will dictate the the atmosphere and the temperature of our church. Very quickly, a church can be cold and unwelcoming. And how does that happen? So this stuff is hugely important. We're not passive observers, no. So indispensability, your presence week in and week out in home group or on Sunday morning or listening to verses in Awana or whatever it is, hugely important. So let's have robust faith in the local church, what it means, and then flesh that, that out in life. How central is the local church in God's plan, God's mission, God's purposes? Hopefully you see this morning it's very central. We'll see that in weeks to come. Is it that central in your life? Okay? Involvement here, if you're a believer, you call this your church home, it's not optional. You're a part of the body of Christ. So here's the deal. Let's rebel against the minimalist ethic. <laughs> just jump all in, you know, just like the uh, book of the month. Don't date the church. Don't flirt with the church. Fall in love with the family of God, okay? And I think when that happens, we're not going to be short on volunteers. We're not going to be, you know, really struggling. I really don't want to miss my television show, and I'll skip out on home group because of that. That's not going to happen. Okay, you've heard of the 80-20 rule, right? 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people or 80% of the giving is done by 20% of the people. Can we just rebel against that? Say, we don't want that to be the case here. We want to get involved, all of us, because we're the body. Every one of us is indispensable. We're a, an organ, a part of the body. Okay? So, as we transition now to the table, which is very appropriate. I hope you see why in just a minute. Just remember, Jesus cares for his body. What does it say in Ephesians 5 in that context of Christ in the church, head in the body? He nourishes and cherishes it, right? That's the way Jesus relates to the body. If we are connected to the head, we will want to nourish and cherish the bride of Christ as well. We will pray for and labor for her maturity and purity and growth and health. We will nourish and cherish her. Okay, so it's very appropriate now to, to come to the table and examine our hearts individually and our hearts corporately. 
who we are corporately because what happened in the chapter right before ours? Chapter 11. Turn back there, and if the men who are going to serve could come up. Flip back to 1 Corinthians 11. There were some serious body divisions and factions and brokenness in the Corinthian church, which is why it's so appropriate for chapter 12 to follow on the heels of chapter 11. So listen to what Paul writes as we prepare our hearts to participate in the table. Beginning in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, Corinthians, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So sometimes the factions are evidence that there are people that genuinely are not converted, and those divisions are inevitable. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Sometimes they had, a, they called it a love feast, they would have a meal, and a part of that was the bread and the cup that they shared, so we typically don't have a whole meal, but this was happening there. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. There were divisions. There were poor and rich, and the, the wealthier people had these great meals, and the poor were going hungry at the time. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, the body of Christ, these divisions that are such a, a stain on the unity that the cross should produce among God's people. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So you can see that they were not heeding the body dynamics that Paul lays out in chapter 12. And so, as we come to the table and examine our own hearts, Let's look in and say, am I resisting the head in any way? Or am I submitting to Jesus as my Lord? And then also, am I contributing actively or maybe by neglect to the lack of growth and health? Am I, am I seeking dismemberment here in my actions? 
what does my faith look like in the local church? And we can repent of that, and we can receive the grace from the head who loves to fill us with life-giving grace so that we can give grace to the body and see it built up. Okay? So if you are a believer in Jesus, if you're trusting Him for your salvation, we invite you, welcome you to participate in the table. If you're not a Christian, maybe you're visiting, um, you're wrestling with what this is all about, we just ask that you let the elements pass. You don't need to participate in a ritual without the, the meaning that's underneath it. Um, you need to come to Christ as your Savior and King. So just let those elements pass. We're going to distribute both the, the bread and the cup while the music is playing, and then if you'd like, you can participate in the song, and then we'll all eat together after everyone's been served. So let me pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would shine by your Spirit into our hearts and show us what we believe about your body, the church. I pray that we would examine our relationship to the head and that we would be reminded that he is the source of all of our spiritual life and health and growth and he is the Lord and I pray that we would gladly submit to him and if there's anything getting in the way help us to just turn from it and run to Jesus this morning and receive fresh grace and forgiveness. And Lord, also help us to look to our fellow members here and see ways we may be contributing to factions or divisions by neglect or gossip or slander or just indifference, whatever it might be, and help us to repent because we want to be a unified body loving and caring for one another well to reflect your glory and grace in beautiful ways so that we might be built up and strengthened and grow like you want us to grow. So Lord, meet with us now as we examine our hearts and eat and drink of the grace that you have supplied for us at the cross. We thank you for Jesus and pray this in his name.